I'm Danielle Royston, and this is Telco in 20. Microsoft recently rocked the telco industry with their announcement that they are building a carrier-grade cloud for telco with the announcement of Azure for operators. Jason Zander, Executive Vice President of Microsoft Azure, put out a blog at the end of September, which put the other BFCs on notice that Azure is the cloud to pick if you are in telco. They are planning to go after the telco industry in a big way to get their business. This announcement is on the heels of their affirmed acquisition, which they announced in March of this year, and the May announcement of the Metaswitch acquisition. Everyone in telco has been wondering, what's up with that? Are they going to come into the telco business? Or do they just want to win their business? Well, today is your lucky day. Because today on the podcast, we're going to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. We're talking with Yusuf Khalidi, one of the original founders of Azure. Yusuf is Corporate Vice President of Azure for Operators. And we're going to find out just what Microsoft is up to. So let's take 20. Today I'm talking with Yusuf Khalidi, and it's not every day we get to talk to one of the founders of Azure on our podcast. So welcome, Yusuf. Thank you, DR, for having me on the show. Awesome. This is going to be really fun. So I wanted to start just a little bit with your background and your history. You've been at Microsoft for about 18 years. What have you been doing for Microsoft for now almost two decades? Sounds great, DR. Well, working at Microsoft is really fun because we do fun stuff, to be honest. I like to build systems. Um, yeah. Many much of my career was building software and platform for the enterprise. Mm-hmm. So back in 2006, when we started building the cloud, it, it was a natural extension or progression of what I've done in the, in the past. Basically, I like to build platforms and see customers, people, enterprises, others using it. Yeah, super impressive career that you've had, Yusuf. So that's awesome. Thank you. So. Azure came about around 2006. Google Cloud Platform was still not on the scene till 2011. AWS kind of came around the same time. So take me to the room where you guys are deciding to start Azure and why did you guys decide to make it commercially available for the world and not just like keep it for yourself? Uh, that's a great question, DR. To be honest, when we started, we were thinking to build a platform that we need for internal services. If you mm-hmm. remember, we had search services, Hotmail, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and we realized quickly that uh, everybody needs this. So mm-hmm. let's, let's go back to 2005, 2006. At that time, enterprises or IT, if you will, was moving quickly to so-called virtualized environments, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. moving from bare metal to virtualization. Right. The, so that trend was happening. Uh, companies like VMware, um, Microsoft itself with Hyper-V and so forth was in the virtualization business. Yep. But some of us realized that there's more to it than just virtualization. It's all about automation, Mm -hmm. about large-scale computing infrastructure that can bring economies of scale, uh, automation, and very importantly for our customers, uh, agility. Agility to react quickly to market needs. So we took existing technologies, applied them at scale and offered them for everybody, for internal services and for third parties. And it's been a journey, to be honest. Like Bing was already built. I would imagine you've built a lot of data centers, maybe for internal purposes for Bing. So was this all built and then you just sort of opened up the doors for external third parties to start to leverage that? Definitely, we've had more than a decade before we started Azure. 
building global networks, mm -hmm. data centers, yeah. and large-scale systems. So yeah. that definitely gave us the head start, the internal expertise, and so forth. But right. I have to tell you, there's a big divide between building something for yourself than building a platform that everybody can benefit from it. Oh, totally. I think this is the part that a lot of telcos miss. Maybe a week ago, I was speaking to someone in Bolivia, a telco executive. He thinks that there's data sovereignty issues and he can't take his data outside of the country. And he's like, well, I'm just going to build my own public cloud. I don't think people quite understand how difficult that is. It is they are. It's more than the, the brick and mortar and the wires and the machines, which you can buy off the shelf, more or less. It's about building the ecosystem. You have to get the ISVs, the developers, the programming models, the, the, the huge set of applications to run on your cloud so customers can use. And building developer ecosystems, it's really hard. And yeah. it's frankly, you need to have a DNA to be able to do so. And I think that DNA, telcos think it's managing the hardware infrastructure, but I think that's what really makes Microsoft and Google unique because they're really software houses, right? They're bringing so much software capability and they understand dev tools and development environments and making it really easy for people to come in and use these tools off the shelf and, and deploy things without ever having to touch a machine or being anywhere close to where the workloads are actually running. Exactly. The software mentality is what we apply to everything from the application APIs and the tooling that a customer would use all the way to running the infrastructure itself. You know, we don't actually have an army of people watching the machines. Yeah. We can't because we have yeah. millions and millions of cores out there. Yeah. We have software, automation, machine learning, and AI driving much of the infrastructure. So unless you have this very deep software DNA, it's really very hard to build very scalable systems. Yeah, it's super difficult and it's super expensive. And most telcos don't have this history of hiring software talent, right? They have network engineers and they do have developers, but software talent tends to go to, you know, these big tech companies. I mean, forever, Microsoft has been a fantastic employer and they tend to get the best talent. You know, there I have a lot of respect for operators and carriers around the globe. They have mm -hmm. a difficult job. I mean, mm -hmm. um, can you imagine if your smartphone not working for a few seconds? We will, I would go crazy. So they <laughs> yeah. have to build carrier-grade networks and systems. So have a, sure. uh, And I know how difficult this, this is mm -hmm. because we mm -hmm. are in somewhat similar business. Having said that, the plumbing or building clouds and the like, why would an operator have to worry about that? We are yeah. plumbers. Leave the plumbing to us and go add value by adding services and value add for your customers. Exactly. And I think what's really interesting is you were talking about the virtualization wave that kind of happened in the early 2000s. And I'm new to telco. I've been in telco for now almost four years. And I was CEO of Optiva, which is a BSS OSS vendor mm -hmm. based in Canada. And when I started to visit customers, I was really surprised about the lack of virtualization. You know, it's 20 years old, basically. But so many of the workloads are number one on-premise and they're running on bare metal. I was actually receiving servers, physical servers in a country, loading it up, installing from the OS level, right? The libraries and code and then shipping servers to locations. And I'm like, am, am I in a time machine? This is like, it's like 1995 over here. It's kind of crazy. It, it, this guy, it sounds crazy, I agree. I mean. 
to be honest, the telco industry has been going through a, a path of virtualization and decentralization, starting maybe five years ago or so. Yeah. So if you look at the analogy where we are today and where, say, IT was in 2005, they're somewhat similar. Yeah. And yeah. that's why we believe a similar journey that enterprises did with the cloud, uh, the same journey can now be applied with different parameters, of course, to operators and carriers. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Okay. Well, let's shift a little bit into talking about Azure for operators. So this past September, Azure announced the carrier grade cloud. And so this is now your latest project. And so what is Azure for operators? So the, the discussion we just had right now about the beginning of the cloud, uh, it's really the, the same reasons why we're starting Azure for operators. So let me explain. Uh, as I mentioned, back in the 2000s, when the industry was going to virtualization and the cloud then brought in high scale automation and economies of scale that not seen before and in the process adding a lot of agility. We want to do the same thing for the telco industry. And that's why we are starting the Azure for Operator project. We want to apply the same principles, same investments, technology, the huge ecosystem of developers and APIs to serve the needs of operators to run their core network workloads, not just the back office applications. And so is this like bringing in managed services to help them move their workloads? Or are you guys planning to build specific software to help them move from incumbent software vendors into your offerings? We are a software company and we we believe in software being delivered as much as possible as a service under the control of the customer. So this is not us going to an operator and say, I'm going to take something off your hand. Not at all. Mm-hmm. It's about empowering them with platforms, tooling, mechanisms, automation, so they can go build the networks as they see fit, control the networks. They control the data. They control the network. They own the customer. That's very important. Yeah. We provide them the plumbing, if you will. We want to do the same economies of scale we've done for the public cloud by doing more automation, but the control is with the operator. That's extremely important to note. Yep. And so you guys had two pretty big acquisitions that happened, one in March and the other one was in May with Affirmed and Metaswitch. What are you guys trying to accomplish with adding them to the Azure offering? In a nutshell, we wanted to bring the DNA or building carrier-grade telco software into Microsoft. That's really, in a nutshell, what you want to do. So as we've been discussing DR, we have the infrastructure, wires, buildings, APIs, ecosystems, and the like. But there are still unique characteristics of building this kind of software for operators. Mm-hmm. The software that backs your phone, be it the packet core or the voice stack or the gateways or OSSBSS, is different than your classical enterprise software. Yeah. So we decided we need to bring the best DNA we can find into our ecosystem, into our company, as if you will, as a house brand to drive the platform. So th- this house brand, the engineers and their products will make the platform better for everybody because we also want to play very well with the partner ecosystem, including the incumbents, including the existing equipment providers. Yeah. Because solutions, as required by operators, can include mixing and matching from different providers, mm-hmm. um, whether they use our house brand or the third party, we're totally fine with this, as long as 
to drive the cloud, which is what we want to do. And so where are you guys on the integration of these two new companies? Have, have they been fully integrated into Azure? Are they still running separate? It's important that when you bring new DNA in here to uh, learn from them. So they have a lot of independence, but they're part of the core Azure team. So we're actually learning from them how to do this kind of software, if you will. Mm-hmm. We are modifying, improving the platform components for their needs. And at the same time, providing them with the infrastructure and support and the backing. They are no longer small companies now. They're part of one of the biggest companies on the face of the earth, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, I was CEO of Optiva, and we had a little BSS suite that actually used Microsoft Dynamics, your CRM mm-hmm. product. And I know a lot of telcos use this product for CRM. Will you be moving Dynamics into Azure for operators or making a version that's you know, more telco specific, so it's like an off-the-shelf offering that people can modify to their needs? Well, in due course, we are planning to bring in the very rich portfolio of software and services to serve the needs of the telcos and the operators. Uh, That may include, of course, components like Dynamics, the development tools, databases, and so forth. And so will you take like the Azure offerings and then give it features that are specific to telco? Yeah. Remember, I keep saying we're plumbers and we build platforms. And platforms Mm -hmm. can be quite flexible. So yes, uh, we have many components already that can be evolved, customized, and again, available for the end customer, in this case being the operator, or the ecosystem that serves them, including... Perfect. Like ISVs, right? ISVs or even equipment providers, the the traditional ones. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, we really try to tailor our podcast to our telco executive audience. And so having a founder of of Azure and the guy who's running Azure for operators, if you're in the room with the telco exec, what is your reason of why a telco should select Azure over your other competitors? What do you guys think that you're bringing to the table that makes you unique and different? I have to tell you the truth. Many execs and CTOs operators are already there. The first step is to think of how to shift the way business is done from the classical bare metal buy boxes mm-hmm. and so forth to more virtualized environment and more agile environment. Yeah. So we can then go add values on top of that. I have to tell you, many of the forward looking operators are already at that juncture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, that means uh, potentially you can look at the hyperscalers and Azure is one of the few hyperscalers out there to help you on this journey. Now, to answer your specific question, I have a lot of respect for my competition. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, we don't compete with our customers. So in Microsoft in general, and Azure in particular, we don't monetize our customers' data. We don't sell devices to compete with them. Mm-hmm. We don't sell video services to compete with them, etc., etc. We truly yeah. keep ourselves to be a software company delivering software over an infrastructure as a platform company. That's the main thing we do. The other thing we did uh, through our acquisitions, we paid our own money to gain that expertise in-house. Mm-hmm. We're not just running around and say to an operator, let's learn together. No, no, no. I'm going to learn quite a bit and then we can go on a journey together. Got so it. the other differentiator is we are quite serious about this thing and um, the acquisition is, a, is a, an indication of that. No, for sure. I mean, those acquisitions, there was articles for a week. And in terms of your messaging, right, Jason Zander's blog that came out that was very targeted towards telcos. I mean, I guess Thomas Kurian's done a little bit on telco. He put out a blog and a talk, I think, in March. 
but that was it. And so this has been my perspective, kind of watching the three hyperscalers, the most pointed messaging to telcos that I've seen. And so it's, it's really Thank exciting. You. And we are actually looking forward to that journey as well. And as I mentioned, we are very cognizant of the needs of the operators to uh, really control their environment and for us to play well with the ecosystem. So we're in dialogue with many of the first-tier operators on making sure that the rules of the game are very clear for everybody. Well, it's interesting because in a couple of weeks, I'm participating in a, a thing with Telecom TV called the Great Telco Debate. And this idea of are the hyperscalers friend or foe? And I think a lot of people in telco are really concerned that the hyperscaler is going to come and, and take over the industry. I'm not concerned about that. That's really kind of at the heart of your message of we don't compete with you. We're a software house. We're here to help you. And we're investing our own money. We're acquiring real businesses. And we're really going to understand your business and build the tools that you guys need to leverage our technology, leverage our plumbing. Indeed, they are. And to be honest, we have actually even published some of these principles uh, with our, our customers as well. So we have it clearly articulated. It's going to be a journey. We were not going to compete with you. We're not going to monetize your business. We, we all know what happened in the 4G generation. Frankly, the money was made by the others over the top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is not our business. We are yep. very much in the plumbing business. So, you know, again, most of our listeners are telco executives, like the person I met in Bolivia that has data sovereignty issues, planning to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on CapEx to build a public cloud themselves. Do you think they can replicate 10%, 50%, 80%? Like, how easy is it to replicate what you guys have built? To build a public cloud at scale, uh, there are literally three big ones on the face of the earth. And there's a reason for that. It's really hard, expensive. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you can end up with a Coke and a Pepsi. Maybe an RC Cola, if it still exists, if you know what I mean. It's yes. just, you can have a few who can actually afford to build these things. Yeah. I mean, even in the, the high-tech industry, without mentioning many names, many companies, frankly, have exited the, the, the idea of playing in the public cloud space. Oh, totally. It's a few handful of clouds is able now to do the high-level scale. There are some very narrow cases where you may want to build something sort of like a private cloud on-premises. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you have geopolitical considerations, sovereignty aspects, and so forth. Yeah. And even for that, we in Azure have products for you to do that. So you can mm-hmm. deploy your own mini cloud on-premises. This was exactly what I was encouraging this executive. I was like, you should totally use the public cloud. He was like, I can't use it. And so I'm like, if what you're saying is true, right? Data sovereignty issues and you've made this decision and you have enough money. The next thing I would do is leverage as much as you can from the public cloud vendors, software that you can use in your own data center. They've already built it for you, just use it. And I wanna emphasize the art, this is actually part of our strategy, the so-called hybrid strategy. Mm-hmm. So even with the enterprise journey we started almost 15 years ago, you know, everybody, every CIO have investments already. They have their own DCs and hardware mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. they need to, you know, Run, run its course. So we met the enterprise where they are. We ran software in a hybrid fashion between the current existing products uh, and investments and the public cloud. We'll do the same thing with the operators. We're going to meet them where they are. They all have some costs on-premises. 5G to be somewhat technical. will probably be on-premises for the long time. But other aspects can run in the public cloud. And in between, uh, the public cloud can help you scale your private cloud deployments. 
Yeah, I do think that the public cloud is a journey, it right? Is. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Like you said, data center investment will run its course. I definitely encourage people to try to do it in a way so that you don't have to go through another hardware refresh cycle because it just continues to extend your timeline. But yeah, I think it's a journey and you got to get started. Indeed, indeed. I mean, you mentioned the OSS and BSS. Some of that can potentially move to the cloud. And uh, between that and a spectrum of software and services that may have to be running here or there. And we're going to go on this journey together. And so what do you think about the use of public cloud today in telcos? What would you say to them on how they're using it? Well, uh, as I mentioned, OSS and BSS, much of it can run in a public cloud. Uh, that stuff should be a no-brainer. Uh, Functions such as uh, data storage and the like. Voicemail, other simple services like that will be moving to the public cloud soon. Yep. Then you're going to find things like the control plane of your core network can be running in certain aspects of the public cloud as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe the edge of it, for example. Mm -hmm. Only the very low latency user plane, maybe IoT inner loop has to be on the real edge or on-premises. So there are going to be multiple clicks on that spectrum here. But the key point, the key point is you want to have uniform orchestration and management across the spectrum. You want to have uniform programmability models and APIs and a partner ecosystem across the spectrum, not having silos that are built separately by different teams because they want to have their own small things here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a ton of opportunity in the consolidation of things like storage and databases and testing pods, right? As you start to move non-critical workloads, right? Maybe things further away from the customer and the network and working your way in. Yep. And you can start to consolidate and actually have more with a lot less spend. You know, this is what happened in the public cloud in the, in the last yeah, 15 years sure. or so. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time where you talk to a, a bank, for example, and say, oh, I will never run my stuff in the public cloud. Slowly but surely, they started looking at the fact that we have the compliance regimes that we they need. Yeah. And they started with the maybe dev and test, test labs and the like. Yeah, they started My, experimenting. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then people moved to disaster recovery, having a copy yeah. of everything in the cloud just in case. Yeah. Now, yeah. many enterprises have the other way around. They may keep some, a small footprint on-premises as the backup, but the production yeah. is in the cloud. So the journey has many... Similarities, I believe, what will happen for the telcos as well. Yeah, this is such a no-brainer. It's amazing. And I'm I'm looking for a telco who is doing it so we can tell the story. I'm like, would you ever go back to the old way? They're going to be like, no, that's like being a caveman. Like, I don't want to go back in time. I want to live in the cloud because it's cheaper, it's faster, it's better on every dimension. Indeed, they are. And uh, we see some of them already moving, by the way. So I'm, I'm very encouraged. I'm super for the future. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm super pumped. So talk to me a little bit about the speed of software development in the public cloud. And I think this is a part that a lot of telco executives miss. And I like to say they think of it as a place. Yep. And they don't really understand this mindset change around the speed of business they can provide to their subscribers once they are deeply integrated into a public cloud. And so people keep talking about keeping things cloud agnostic, right? They want to design things in a way that they can move to a different hyperscaler and it's a way to negotiate with my hyperscaler of like, oh, I'm not beholden to you. And I think this is a really wrong idea. I really think you should deeply embed 
and deeply use the elements of a public cloud, right? Using all of those tools and get the maximum benefits. Yeah, what's important is to start thinking in a way that the cloud is the destination. You want to follow the principles of a cloud. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with scale-out architectures, highly available, virtualized, et cetera, et cetera. Writing portable software is always a good virtue. So mm-hmm. if you want to insist your team and your vendors have the software being portable, that's not a bad thing per se. But to your point, you want to embrace the cloud because it is, it is a cloud. It's not yeah. a hosting environment. It's not a bunch of machines and you're, you're getting racking and stacking of the machines. Mm-hmm. What you are consuming are services including the low-level services like virtual machines and the like, all the way to high-level services like data and AI and ML. Once you start thinking of consuming services, you can really unlock the ability to move very quickly and then add value very quickly. I mean, a very simple example. Today, if you want to build a new service, part of your calculation is, where is my capital budget for the machines, for the floor space, the OS, all the usual stuff you have to get Mm -hmm. done. And then you have to think of, I need an IT team to manage the machines and the software and the wires and the physical network and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. All of that is software in the public cloud. Yeah. It's priced in. It's priced in. It's it's virtual. Even the network. And it's priced by the minute, right? Or the hour. Of course. Of course. And and you can buy in bulk and you get a discount and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. And so... If you could speak directly to a telco executive today as they consider to move more critical workloads, what would you say to them? Well, first, we understand how difficult your job is. We understand the importance of of running uh, carrier-grade networks and services. So we at Microsoft and Azure, we're going with this thing with our eyes wide open that we're going to have to go on a journey with you on this. Having said that, we also believe that there's a secular trend toward virtualization and disaggregation of the core network to give you more flexibility how you build it, and importantly, very importantly, how to add value on top of the network to build new services and products so you can go and basically increase your top line as well. I think that gets operators really excited as they start looking towards future Gs and how they're going to rationalize the huge investment that it takes to build out a new network and excite their subscribers. Indeed, indeed. And please remember one last point as well, especially with 5G and beyond, there is an intersection now of communication and computing because the way you're going to add value out of 5G is going to be for things like IoT, machine-machine communication, Mm -hmm. and new scenarios like augmented reality and gaming and so forth. Yeah. And for that, you have to compute, not just move bits around. And who else understands computing better than a hyperscaler like Azure? That's awesome. Well, Yusuf, it's been a fantastic talk with you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, DR. I really appreciate it too as well. Awesome. Stick around because we're ending each podcast with a telco in 20 takeaway. I have 20 seconds to tell you something you need to know. A question that I get asked a lot is whether or not the hyperscalers or the BFCs are friend or foe. And I was thinking about this exact issue when I was prepping for Telecom TV's The Great Telco Debate. I was lucky enough to stumble across Benedict Evans' latest blog, Are You a Seal?, that talks about this never-ending question. Talk about perfect timing. He uses this great analogy about seals, which is, when a shark bites a surfer, it's by accident. It's because a surfer looks like a seal. Unless you think telcos are a bunch of seals, the sharks, in this case, the BFCs, 
are probably not going to go after you. The BFCs definitely are big sharks cruising around looking for seals to eat. Could the BFCs eat the telcos? Absolutely. They could. The question is, would they? Here's a little test taken from Benedict's blog to figure out if it makes sense for the BFCs to consume telco. First, can a telco's primary business be naturally added to the BFC's existing skills that they already have? Second, could the BFCs turn your business from networks to low friction automated scalable software? Third, would they have to create a whole new capability that they don't have today? If the BFCs can turn your business into a trivial part of their current business, they will. But since you would have to totally recreate a telco inside a BFC, they probably won't mistake you for a seal. Remember back in 2015 when Google announced they were going to build an MBNO? It was called Project Nova, which turned into GoogleFi. It's now 2020. Uh, do you sit around worrying about GoogleFi all the time? My guess is probably not. And so in answering Benedict Evans' question, is telco a seal? My answer is no. Read his blog for yourself. I'll be sure to put it in this episode's show resources. And while you're surfing around on the internet, you big bad shark, check out the Great Telco Debate, where I discuss this and other topics. Watch the debate now. Hopefully, I'll convince you that the hyperscalers aren't the enemy. They want to help telco. So vote against and submit some questions. We'll do a live Q&A on the 10th of December. Be sure to tune in. Look for a link in our show notes. Also, be on the lookout for a special year-end podcast during the last week of December. I want to give a huge thanks to Yusuf Khalidi and thank you to all of our listeners. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, share our podcast with your colleagues, and if you liked what you heard, leave us a review. Let's connect on LinkedIn and on Twitter at TelcoDR. And one more time, sign up for an email newsletter at TelcoDR.com. You can also WhatsApp me at 925-TelcoDR. Later, nerds!